BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm David Leonhardt. I'm Ross Douthat, and this is The Argument. This week, is universal pre-K just a liberal pipe dream? It's been transformative for a lot of families. And then, what is the place of gay priests in the Catholic Church? And this kind of allowed a culture of don't ask, don't tell, not just about sex abuse with children or adolescents, but also about sex in general with adults. And finally, a recommendation. But the ones that I have come to like, I really do read. I actually look forward to getting them. Universal pre-K always tends to show up on progressive policy wish lists. The challenge of finding reliable, affordable child care is a huge boulder wedged firmly between women and a million opportunities out there. Advocates promise that it will help level the playing field for kids by making early education more accessible, which they say would lead to a range of other related effects that would be really good for society. But not everyone including me, is convinced that universal pre-K is universally good. This week, we have our colleague, Mara Gay, here to join us. Mara writes about New York politics for The Times. Hey, Mara. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I feel honored. So, Mara, can you talk a little about what universal pre-K looks like in places in America that have it, like now New York City? Sure. So this is considered to be Mayor Bill de Blasio's greatest achievement in office, And essentially in 2013, before he was elected, we had 19,000 kids enrolled in pre-K. And today we have 70,000 children enrolled in pre-K. And it's a program that has a lot of problems. It's very difficult to implement. But it's also a program that's been heralded as giving thousands of children a better start in life. The Head Start program going decades back, the federal program, to uh, help low-income children access preschool and early learning programs was, in many studies, seen as very successful, depending on how and where it was implemented. And so this is really a continuation of that at the city level. Uh, Michelle, you're actually in the New York City program, right? Your kids are in it? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, my son went to universal pre-K and my daughter's in it now. And, you know, it's probably the reason why I will always be a de Blasio supporter. I mean, because he created what is basically a whole new school system in a very short period of time. And it's been transformative for a lot of families, you know, and my family's super privileged, but it has really removed a huge burden for us. And I can only imagine what a help it is for people without our resources. Um And to be honest, I feel like pre-K is often, universal pre-K is often justified in terms of its impact on school readiness. For us, the most important thing about pre-K is just that it's a form of subsidized child care. You know, so when my daughter was in preschool for three-year-olds, which is not subsidized, we were paying more than $20,000 a year. And all of a sudden, we're not paying that anymore. 
Ross, there are conservatives who think pre-K is one of the best things that government can do, but my sense is you're not among those conservatives. Is that right? Well, I mean, first, some sort of personal disclosures, right? We used to live in Washington, D.C., which has universal pre-K. We availed ourselves of universal pre-K for a year when we were living there. So I I have no sort of deep-seated ideological aversion to putting kids in daycare. I put my own kids in daycare. That being said, I think the case for skepticism here is sort of twofold. First, uh, and here I think Michelle and I probably somewhat agree, I, I think there's sort of an overselling of the extent to which pre-K prepares kids for school, levels the playing field, leads to increased economic opportunity down the road. A lot of the evidence we have from Head Start programs in the past is that these programs can work really well when they're small scale and have a dedicated group of people running them, but they scale very badly and the effects diminish the bigger they get. If you look at one of the biggest experiments with universal pre-K, which is something that Quebec you know, our great socialist neighbor to the north did starting in 1997, a big province-wide universal pre-K program. There was a big study on this by a group of economists a couple of years ago, which showed that a lot of measures of not just child preparedness, but child well-being actually declined for kids who were in the program, which doesn't tell us anything about New York, but at least it tells us how difficult it can be to build a sort of educationally and for that matter, emotionally effective program. So I think there's a lot of reason for skepticism that universal pre-K has these big effects on how kids perform in school down the road and and economic opportunity and so on. And so the case for it really boils down to, you know, people need childcare. And I agree that people need childcare, but I think it's much more reasonable to build programs that don't basically discriminate against families that have a parent staying home with the kids. So to the extent that I could be talked into a universal pre-K program, I would want it to look like something like what Matt Brunig, who runs this small outfit called the People's Policy Project, just put out where you have a universal pre-K program that also provides a subsidy for mothers or fathers who are providing care in the home that basically tries to maintain a level playing field between stay-at-home parents, part-time parents, and parents who work full time. But you could you could just as easily say that public school discriminates against homeschooling parents. I mean, it's the nature of public goods that not everybody avails themselves of them. I mean, that's just sort of fundamentally how redistribution works. Yes, but I think there's a way to do redistribution that doesn't have an inherent bias against stay-at-home parents. And so, to me, a program where the country said we have universal pre-K, but we are also going to give a tax credit to stay-at-home parents below a certain income is better than one where we say, hey, you know what? If you want to stay home and take care of your kid and your working class, we don't help you. But if you want to put your kid in daycare or pre-K, we do help you. I mean, in New York City, the experience is that there's vast disparity in income and benefits for teachers in some of these pre-K programs. So in one neighborhood, you may have a pre-K program where the teachers are making $60,000 a year, $50,000 a year or more. And then in another neighborhood, you have a community-based program where teachers are making twenty dollars to thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year. So not every pre-K is the same. But at the same time, I think that's infrastructure that can certainly be improved upon. And I, I also would, would say to Michelle's point that 
that is a huge benefit for many working parents, especially those who couldn't afford to pay for childcare um, on their own. So it's hard to, I think, from a practical perspective from my end, see a downside. It seems to be a good use of money. I mean, there's certainly room for, for improvement. Right. And it's, I mean, it's hugely popular and sort of one of those public goods that's taken advantage of by all social classes, right? Like one of the things that I really like about my daughter's UPK is it really looks like New York City. I also I don't I don't know. I don't really understand this idea that it discriminates against stay at home parents. I mean, in part because stay at home parents also use universal pre-K, right? I mean, you can be a stay at home parent and still not mind getting six hours off a day. You know, it's the stay at home parents that end up becoming class parents and playing this really influential role a lot of times in how the schools run. I don't know that they sort of resent the fact that there is this free public good that gives them a few hours off every day. Well, those, I mean, those stay-at-home parents don't, obviously. And and if you're a stay-at-home parent who wants to avail yourself of universal pre-K, it's obviously a good that you're using. But there are a lot of stay-at-home parents who are stay-at-home parents precisely because they don't want daycare providers taking care of their kids for six to eight hours a day. And those parents are performing large amounts, I mean, (laughs) very large amounts of unpaid labor that effectively remains unpaid even as their tax dollars go to pay for somebody else taking care of other people's kids. So it it does – I mean, I I don't think you can escape from the fact that it discriminates. I just think the best way to do that pro-parent redistribution is to say we're going to have universal daycare, but we're also going to provide a subsidy for people who have three kids, two of whom are under five, and they're taking care of all of them in the home. I'm curious how much hostility there would be among liberals, feminists, other groups with a lot of voice in these kind of universal pre-K arguments to that kind of program, right? To someone saying, we're going to do universal pre-K. It it depends on whether you make it zero sum, right? Like, I would be hostile to that kind of program if it meant doing away with universal pre-K. You know, I wouldn't be hostile to that sort of program on top of universal pre-K for all the reasons I just pointed out. I don't, I think that what it ends up doing is becoming an incentive for one parent to stay home or or even just like a bonus for families where one parent is privileged enough to stay home and would likely be not enough to let most parents avail themselves of private options for pre-K. Right. I mean, I think I, I agree with Michelle um, on that, but I, I have to say that it reminds me a little bit of this argument, and we have it all over society, but is it Black Lives Matter or is it All Lives Matter? <laughs> and it's like, where is the greatest need? And the greatest need uh, is absolutely with low-income and working-income families. One of the cool things about universal pre-K and the way that de Blasio has rolled out in New York is that they're not just trying to address the needs of the neediest families, but of everyone. And so I think that's a, a great idea for a lot of reasons. And one of them is what you described, Michelle, which is that we're helping integrate at least the pre-K racially earlier. And I think that's really important. And I think that's a that's a public good. But I have to say that I would have a problem with taxpayer dollars going to incentivize or reward folks who have every right to stay home. But I think the way that would work in New York is most likely... You know, I live in Brooklyn Heights and the stay-at-home moms in my neighborhood 
can afford to stay home. Very few people can anymore. And so I don't love the idea, frankly, of taxpayer dollars going to families who don't need them, where we have massive needs. So I'm in favor of universal pre-K. Mara, I understand that idea that you don't want to have money basically going to the upper middle class. But I still think it's a real concern that universal pre-K discriminates against people who want to be stay-at-home parents, including working class people. We also have just established early in this conversation that universal pre-K itself provides a kind of subsidy to those well-off moms in Brooklyn because they get to be stay-at-home moms and put their kids in daycare for four hours a day or pre-K and four, for four or five hours a day and sort of ease their stay-at-home lifestyles, you're, right? You're getting a public good out of, out of having wealthier kids in a public school that you're not getting when they're at home. So I would make that argument. Any day. Yeah, I guess I would argue that it's also a public good to give working class families more choice about how they want to raise their kids, whether they want to do it as stay at home parents or in daycare, because that's the same choice that upper middle class families have. And we'd also, there's also a sense in which we have, for better or worse, a public consensus in this country that. K through 12 education is sort of a necessary part of preparing people for adulthood. We don't have that kind of consensus, I think for somewhat good reasons, as even that Quebec study suggests, about what three-year-olds need in order to be prepared for society, right? Which is, if you say we should put all 12-year-olds in public school, I think a lot more people would endorse that than if we said we should put all two-year-olds in daycare. We require people to put kids in in school with obvious homeschooling exceptions. We don't require that for under five-year-olds, I think, for some obvious reasons. One of the interesting things in New York is that there's this debate about whether the program should have been rolled out in low-income neighborhoods first. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I do think that it goes to the heart of kind of what we were what we're discussing here, which is is that discriminatory against other kinds of families? Should we care? I, I don't right. know. Well, I but... don't think it's discriminatory, but I just I think it was smart to roll it out the way they did because it created, frankly, a kind of politically powerful base of support for these programs that, you know, I mean, right, that's just the kind of general issue about universal benefits versus means-tested benefits is that, you know, by doing it the way they did, they got families like mine heavily invested in the success that's, of this that's program. That's right. I, I agree. I mean, I, I tend to agree. I think that it's important to have middle class and upper middle class and wealthy families invested in the public school system in New York City. And, you know, unfortunately, that has often been done at the cost of other families. And so it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. And this is a great example of, of something that actually largely, I think, is, is working. One, one other dynamic here is that I think that upper-middle-class parents are more comfortable having their kids integrate with poorer kids in younger grades than in older grades. Yeah. So I think I think you see a lot more sort of acceptance of the idea of racial and socioeconomic integration among six-year-olds than you do once middle school rolls around. Well, look, in a segregated city, I think having integrated preschool is a darn good start. 
Look, I have little concerns about it. Uh, we've talked about the stay-at-home parent issue. I also think um, progressives often don't pay enough attention to the quality and aren't willing to be tough enough about shutting down or sanctioning programs that are not good. But to me, overall, pre-K is doing a ton of good. And I think it's an important thing to keep in mind in this moment when it's easy to feel like everything is moving in the wrong direction in our country. There are actually some things in this country that are getting better. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with a conversation about Catholicism with Andrew Sullivan. As a global leader in experiential education, Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. It's been another hard winter of scandal for my church, the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Francis recently convened the church's first global summit on sex abuse, promising accountability for bishops as well as priests, even as he was taking the dramatic step of defrocking Cardinal Theodore McCarrick of Washington, D.C. for abuse. Theodore McCarrick lost the title of cardinal back in July. Now he's become the highest-ranking figure to be defrocked in recent memory. Meanwhile, a new book on homosexuality in the Vatican stirred the debate over the church's rules on celibacy and the prevalence of closeted gay men in the priesthood. Andrew Sullivan and I have been arguing about our shared church really ever since he allowed me to guest blog for him many, many years ago. And he's been writing about all of this for New York Magazine lately. So I've invited him to join me for an intra-Catholic conversation. Andrew, welcome to The Argument. Thank you, Ross. It's lovely to be here and lovely to talk to you again. It's been too long. It, ha it has indeed. So let's start with, I guess, a sort of big picture practical question. What do you think caused the church's sex abuse scandal? And more importantly, why is it still this ongoing scandal after so many years of revelations, attempted solutions, attempted summits, and so on? Well, that's a big question. And I think the answer is quite complicated. Many institutions have child abuse problems. I mean, it's obviously not just the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, we just, we've, we're seeing other denominations find this too. So you start with a baseline depressing fact that this goes on, and we're becoming more aware of it. But then I also think that, uh, that the way the church closets its gay priests and the way in which it has an extremely high resistance to giving scandal, as the formal word would be, about the church, that it has a culture of secrecy and hierarchy. 
in which is almost designed to prevent these things being exposed quickly and swiftly and properly. And then I think we do have a problem uh, with the fact that the priesthood is is overwhelming, well, not overwhelmingly, but disproportionately gay, let's put it that way, and that that has led to so many priests being in the closet and celibacy being what it is, it's a process, it isn't a sudden uh, reinvention of the human being, it's a difficult task for most priests and many of them occasionally will fail. Most priests have something in their background that could be used against them. And especially in the case of gay priests, who would be targeted both for violating celibacy in the instances that they might have, and also for just being gay itself. And that therefore, what emerged over the years was really a culture of secrecy in which everyone had something on everybody else. It was a sort of omerta, a mutually assured destruction of the closet. And... That itself, I think, helped cover up the sex abuse and compound it. In this way, if someone were to notice something untoward happening with another priest and wanted to expose it, the person he was trying to expose would easily be able to come back, in most cases, and find something against that person to get him outed or to exact revenge. And this kind of allowed a culture in which of don't ask, don't tell, not just about uh, sex abuse with children or adolescents, but also about sex in general with adults. And I think that contributed to this being compounded over the years in ways that are really too horrifying to even contemplate. I think you can't understand this without sort of getting into complexity, right? And, you know, I think for a long time, I mean, one of the things about the church, especially since the 1960s, is that it has this kind of theological polarization between would-be liberalizers and would-be conservatives um, who disagree about how the church can change, how much it could change, who tend to disagree specifically on issues like celibacy and how the church approaches homosexuality. And so both sides have had narratives where, you know, the liberals say, well, obviously it's hierarchy and celibacy and authority. And the conservatives tend to say, you know, well, no, it's there was this sort of breakdown in the church in the 60s and 70s when things went haywire and lots of men left the priesthood and there was sort of this sense that all the rules were being relaxed. And the people who remained tended to be people, included a lot of people who were sort of using the priesthood, you could almost say, to sort of hide from society in certain ways, sort of hide from adult responsibility and so on. And those were, some of them were the kind of people who became predators and some of them were the kind of people who were likely to be compromised in various ways. And that's when you got the real spike in sex abuse. We just don't know, do we, how far back this goes. I mean, we, it, when one looks at religious institutions, those which have severe hierarchies in which there isn't really any mechanism for whistleblowing that isn't easily punished, I don't think we should go overboard and say there were this, we did never have this problem in the past before we discovered it in the 60s and 70s. Now, we, clearly that was a big spike, and it does seem, I think, 
to have declined dramatically in the last decade or so. Although I agree with you, it's a complicated thing. And I think all the, those, the liberals and the conservatives all have something to contribute to this understanding of what has gone wrong. And it would be better if we were able to respect and understand each other's concerns a little better. Uh, and as a homosexual person myself, I, 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 I really have no interest whatsoever in defending sexual abuse of any kind, gay or straight. The question becomes, though, why is the priesthood so gay? It's, and what does that do in the context of a church which in the last 20 to 30 years has doubled down on the impermissibility of homosexual relationships and indeed has described the very being of being homosexual in terms that I don't think would be used to describe any other group of people. And my sense going around and talking to as many as I could is that they are really at the end of their rope, that the ability to keep lying all the time, which they have to do, is just morally and psychologically destructive to them. And they may leave. Well, let's, let's talk about that question of why is the priesthood, as you say, so gay? Right, and I, I think there, are, I think there are a couple things going on, and I, I think again, it's sort of a combination of deeply rooted realities about Catholicism with a particular shift that happened forty or so years ago. Right, like I, you know, if you have a church that teaches that gay sex is sinful and has a celibate male priesthood. There are obvious reasons why large numbers of same-sex attracted Catholic men would be drawn to the priesthood. And that seems For like centuries. a sort of For centuries. Un, right. That seems like a sort of unvarying fact of Catholic life. But that a bad, church, that's a bad reason though. To cover it's a, it's, up your own identity a, is a terrible reason to become a priest. What we talked about there is sort of the negative reason. There are very positive reasons why gay men – seek the priesthood too. And, and that is why, and I think it's important to say this explicitly at some point in any discussion, the vast majority of gay priests are wonderful people who give their lives and do amazing jobs day after day. I was blown away and still am blown away by the good work that they do. My solution is honesty. They don't have to wear this on their sleeve every day, and they shouldn't talk about it very much at all, but it should be okay for their parishioners to understand that this is their journey and this is their person and this is who they are. There's the sex abuse crisis that relates to pedophilia and homosexuality and pedophilia are different and gay men are not any more likely to be pedophiles than straight men and therefore we don't want to say anything that, that collapses the two categories. But then the problem is you have this zone of abuse, which the former Cardinal McCarrick who abused his seminarians falls into, that is in effect, you know, you could call it a sort of same-sex gay version of Me Too, right? Where it's not, it's not priests abusing children, it's closeted gay men in the hierarchy abusing their position to abuse seminarians, young men and teenagers, right? Well, because I think that there's been a confusion, because there's a third category, right, which is completely consensual adult relationships that are not sexually abusive, by which I mean the abuse of power within the church. And there are plenty of very adjusted gay priests 
who have found some balance in that. So there's, a, there's sexual abuse, which is a totally different thing. There's, there's sexual failure, let's say, to live up to celibacy. And then there's pedophilia. So they're, they're three very different things. Uh, right. But and I they think they're are... very different also in their moral, their moral nature. So, that, so the, the child abuse is obviously absolutely despicable. The abuse is also despicable, but I don't think it's quite as bad as raping children. Uh, but the other, but the problem is the church cannot even sanction healthy sexuality for gay people. So it all, the, from the church's point of view, it all gets, gets blurred together. Well, the church, but the church's view is that, is that priests are not supposed to have a healthy sexuality that embodies itself in sexual relationships. My question for you then is, you think that there is a, a kind of theological move that the Catholic Church can make where you say, look, we're just going to accept the sexual revolution and we're going to justify it through some mix of scriptural reinterpretation and references to Darwinian biology and historical revisionism. And in the end, well, I guess that's the question. In the end, where do, we, where do you end up? What, what is the church teaching on sexuality at the end of this story? We have healthy, honest gay priests and healthy, honest straight priests all committed so far as they can do as human beings to celibacy. We have a different understanding of homosexuality within the church in which we are not just regarded as a problem to be solved, but as a gift to be cherished and in which the next generation does not see the Roman Catholic Church as a bastion of irrational bigotry, which is what they now believe. The end, if we do not change, is going to be the disintegration of the church. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. <laughs> Andrew, we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you so much <laughs> for doing this small part of a larger argument. Thank you, Ross. It's always lovely to talk to you. God bless. You too. Now it's time once again for our weekly recommendation. And this week, it's David's turn. David, what do you have for us? So my recommendation is email newsletters. I realize that email is not the sexiest form of technology. And if anything, it feels kind of old-fashioned and early 21st century. Uh, but a couple years ago, I started writing a daily email newsletter. And to prepare for it, I, I started subscribing to more. And I came to realize that it's a really wonderful way to receive information. And so I basically now start my day reading three or four different email newsletters. Uh, I read Vox Sentences, which actually comes out at night by Nicole Fallert and others. There's a great newsletter for people involved in politics written by Jonathan Bernstein of Bloomberg. It's almost baseball season. My single favorite form of baseball content is a newsletter by a guy named Joe Sheehan. Sometimes you have to pay for these, but that doesn't tend to be a lot of money. And even with all these other forms of technology, I've decided that just opening my inbox in the morning or in the evening and reading a bunch of these email newsletters is really a nice way to keep up on the world. So I wonder, do either of you subscribe to email newsletters? You know, I actually don't know if I do. I might, but it it doesn't become... I'm surprised that it doesn't just become one more looming thing in your inbox that you're kind of supposed to look at but can't quite face, which is how I feel about, you know, 90% of the emails that I get. I will confess that I subscribe to many more email newsletters than I read. 
But the ones that I have come to like, I really do read. I actually look forward to getting them because maybe it's the fact that they're written in a nice casual voice, but it, it's they've become really a central part of my media diet, and I don't think about them as some miserable form of email that I have to respond to. Maybe it's because you don't have to respond to them. You can just read them and, and then not worry about it. And what do you get out of them that you don't get just through, you know, social media or listservs or other kinds of, you know, information delivery systems? So there are a few people out there who have decided that this is the right business model for them. So Judd Lagoom, who's a progressive writer for many years, has decided that what he's going to do is launch a newsletter, charge some amount of money for it, but this will free him up to just focus on the really important stuff he wants to focus on. Joe Sheehan, the baseball writer, has basically done the same thing. And so in some cases, it's that people who I think are really smart have decided this is a good model for journalism, and I just want to read them. In other cases, I think it's sort of a form of summary. This guy, Jonathan Bernstein from Bloomberg Opinion, basically helps summarize the political news of the day in just a couple hundred words. And I think email forces a form of both conversationalism and also brevity that I find useful. Sadly, I've been with Michelle um, on this, at least until now, in that I subscribe to a number of email newsletters, and they tend to pile up like the proverbial unread New Yorkers in my inbox. But David, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to be a different man. I'm going to go all in and actually read them. That's our show for the week. Thanks so much for listening. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324, and we might play you on the show. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, we'd love if you'd leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Francis Ying. And our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. Thanks again. Okay, you've convinced me. <laughs> I do not subscribe to astrology. <laughs> <laughs>